Hello and welcome. This is Amanda and Filler, coming to you from a porch by the ocean. You're listening to our podcast cover story, and this is episode two. Today, we will be discussing two influential cover songs we really dig. On side A, we discuss Nirvana's poignant, deep, and dark cover of Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night? And on side B, we discuss the band's cover of Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City. So let's dive in. If this is your first time listening, it's good to have you with us. For everyone else, welcome back. Cover Story is produced every week, and show notes can be found over at thecoverstorypodcast.com. If you enjoy listening to Cover Story, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. Now on with the show. Filler, can you cue up side A, please? September is the cruelest month to release a video like the one Nirvana made for Heart Shaped Box in September 1993. I had just turned 13, and this video, which opens to a field of red poppies, an emaciated Jesus wearing a Santa hat, climbing across to be picked at by black crows, and Kurt Cobain's disconcerting lyric that closes the first verse, that he wished he could eat your cancer before you turned black. All this occurs in the seconds before the drums kick in heavy and the sky in the video goes red and the video really starts. It was enough to warp the mind of the average 13-year-old American boy. The dark, bleak, and disturbing video was all-powerful, even in its sickness, and it was all the permission we needed to throw rocks at passing trains and the windows of an abandoned building. Heart-shaped box scared people and set Kurt Cobain apart from Nirvana and displayed his deepest pathos in what must have been seen as his greatest developed work of art. Nirvana, the final album. The queasily titled masterpiece in utero. Heart-shaped box played all fall as the days got shorter and autumn turned to winter in the great American school year. But this piece, written for the cover story, isn't about heart-shaped box, although in utero, with its anthem, Look on the Bright Side, Suicide, was the cloud that hung over the band as Thanksgiving passed and everyone finally went inside to put on an ugly sweater and twinkle, sparkle, and huddle around the TV for Christmas. The song I'm thinking about, perhaps the most powerful cover song of all time, was the closing number on the MTV program known as Nirvana Unplugged, which first aired on December 16, 1993, and didn't stop playing for at least a year. America's heart seemed hardened towards Kurt, I mean, after the aforementioned video and other charmers such as Rape Me encouraged many a suburban mom to confiscate your CD player. Kurt has visibly changed as well, looking like that emaciated Jesus as he climbed his stool wearing a tattered sweater. He looked incredibly distant but knowingly present. The band played fantastic renditions of their own tracks, playfully covered David Bowie and others, and just crushed what I think is Kurt's saddest and most honest song about addiction and suicide something in the way. But the most lasting image of the program, which I must have seen a thousand times and still gives me chills today, is the moment when Kurt's scream overtakes all and the guitars come to a halt during the final song, Kurt's cover of Where Did You Sleep Last Night? The music stops. Kurt sings both verses again, then raises his voice to the point of urgency and frantically demands of this poor girl who seems totally alone. My girl, where did you sleep last night? He asks. Where will you go? But at this point, we know where Kurt is going to go. 
We know what Kurt is going to say. We don't realize it now, but this is the last time we are going to see Kurt Cobain alive as he tells us that he, just as the dreadfully alone character for whom he sings, he is going where the cold wind blows. Gus Van Sant's poignant film, Last Days, imagined the hours in advance of Cobain's suicide with a shotgun that April at his wooded Seattle home. It eloquently imagined Kurt walking the halls in a dress and bathrobe as people came and went, just as alien to him as he was to them in these last hours. I can't help but think the song is about him. Kurt was going into the pines, deep into the pines. Kurt is screaming that he's going to the darkness where the sun don't shine and that he's going to shiver until the end of his sad ordeal. He belts this out in a primal scream that dens the entire room. The only guitar still playing kind of jerks out and Kurt is alone. It is over. Nirvana Unplugged became so ubiquitous immediately. It played that entire December and into the new year and then was everywhere after his suicide that April. Kurt and the band Nirvana never really had to answer for the grown-up dark nature of in utero and everything that came with their aesthetic because it was over. Where Did You Sleep Last Night was the last time I saw Kurt alive on TV as a 13-year-old and I recognized it then and recognize it now as one of the most powerful performances of all time. We have Peter Costanzo here in the studio. Pete wrote that editorial that Amanda just read an excerpt from. Peter is the director of the Rare Book Department at Doyle, New York. Peter, talk to us about Kurt Cobain. Talk to us about Lead Belly. Let's chat. <laughs> well, first of all, Pete, thanks so much for being here. We're psyched you uh, came down to the studio. Um, it seems to me after reading that beautiful essay and talking to you about Nirvana and the song where did you sleep last night in particular, that this really had an impression on you. And I'm wondering if you could take Matt and I back a little bit to when you were 13 and just the impact the song had on you at hearing it and um, just walk us through that a little bit. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, motivated by the idea of the podcast, when we started talking about this a few months ago, I instantly threw out this song, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? The version, of course, performed by Nirvana as the final track on Nirvana Unplugged. While everyone knew the song and knew that it wasn't a Nirvana song, nobody really knew too much about the song, but everyone agreed that it was this extremely powerful and moving performance, and I was motivated to find out more about it. And if you look back at Leadbelly's version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night, it follows the form, or creates the form that Kurt followed uh, during that recording, and it really varies from many other dozens, in fact, of other recordings of the song. Now... It's hard to even call it a song as it is, because Where Did You Sleep Last Night is actually the combination of two traditional American songs, both 19th century Appalachian Americana kind of songs. The first one is known as In the Pines. Lyrics of In the Pines are very simple. It's either sung as My Girl, My Girl, or as Black Girl, Black Girl, Don't Lie to Me, Tell Me Where Did You Sleep Last Night. Many different versions of the song all the way through to the modern era. You hear it sung both ways, as My Girl, My Girl, or as Black Girl, Black Girl. And the lyrics are unrelentless in their economy. There's just nothing there uh, to tell you any more about it. Uh, All you really know is what is asked of this girl don't lie to me tell me where did you sleep last night and to which she answers in the pines in the pines where the sun don't ever shine i'll shiver the whole night through the other song that is combined with is another traditional known as the longest train i ever saw 
which also has very few lyrics. So when you look at earlier versions of The Longest Train I Ever Saw, you're met with similarly very few lyrics to work with, and you're told this horrifying story of a train accident in somewhere in the 19th century America where somebody is reporting it's a woman who's reporting it's either the girl or the woman but somebody is reporting my father was a railroad man and all the different versions of the song agree that this railroad man died a mile and a half from here that his head was found in the driving wheel but his body never was found and these lyrics are belted out by Kurt they're belted out by Lead Belly. They don't appear in every version of this traditional that you hear. Hence, it's a cover song because Kurt is playing it just as Lead Belly played it. And these lyrics are scary. So uh, in researching it, what is a driving wheel? Well, it sounds like the place where the conductor should be sitting as he drives the yeah. train, but he's not. What the driving wheel is, is a massive wheel below the train above the wheels that are on the tracks that receives energy directly from the pistons and it's a wheel that drives the train forward actually they, they have driving wheels and watches too that's like a, a technical term for something that moves things along so the mechanics of a watch driving wheel sorry little segue <laughs> there you have it it's a worthwhile segue because the next question is well why was this man's head found in there That's so crazy and why was his body never found and what does this do to this song Oof. what what is this horrifying song and what my, a way to go man. what a way to go my father was a railroad man he died a mile and a half from here his head was found in the driving wheel but his body never was found his head was found in a wheel but his body have to imagine that this man was working under the train somewhere and solved his problem something jerked into motion that train lurched forward and off with his head the body never was found uh, the train goes wherever it goes and arrives there and the man's head is there and this news either the head itself or the news is delivered back to this girl or this woman or either describing her father or describing her husband and how he was killed in this grisly accident and that is all you really know of the song, and that is where the song easily morphs and beckons the other traditional in the pines, and they blend together. And the question comes, well, my girl, where will you go? And she reports, in the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, to shiver the whole night through. That without her husband or without her father, without this person in her life, she is alone and veering towards this darkness. So in bringing it back to, her, uh, to Kurt Cobain, singing this in December of 1993 when it was released, when we were in such an impressionable age, 13 years old, anyone who was a teenager watching that uh, really remembers what it looked like. And then we all know that a few months later, Kurt Cobain killed himself, and it's in that song which was played last. And I think it's something very conscious on Kurt's part. It just reeks of swan song, and it's very dramatic. And as the song plays towards its crescendo, the crescendo of the song is Kurt just screaming in a guttural way that ends all the other music, and everything just bows out as he's telling you he's going to shiver that whole night through until morning until it's over and but kurt you're hearing him singing there's something in the way he says those words that to me is just very haunting
Wow, that was a great conversation with Peter Costanzo. We want to thank Pete for sharing his impressions on such a haunting piece of Americana. Geez Louise filler, I think I need a drink after all that heavy stuff. Such good insight into the history behind Nirvana's cover, though. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I'm gonna have some crazy dreams tonight about the head and the driving wheel. Definitely. Sheesh, let's lighten the mood a little bit by taking our listeners to Atlantic City, shall we, filler? We shall. Atlantic City is a song written and recorded by Bruce Springsteen, and it first appeared on Springsteen's 1982 solo album, Nebraska. Springsteen recorded the track in his bedroom and provides the vocals, guitar, harmonica, tambourine, organ, and synthesizer for the song. The song depicts a young couple's escape to Atlantic City and wrestles with themes of death. The brilliant opening line, Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night, now they blew up his house too, is a clear nod to the Philadelphia crime family mafia boss Philip Testa, a.k.a. the Chicken Man, who was killed by a bomb back in 1981. The song evokes the widespread uncertainty regarding gambling during its early years in Atlantic City and its promises to resurrect the city, as well as the young man's uncertainty about taking a job with the mob. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Speaking of everything dying and coming back, Filler and I want to get to the heart of this episode, a conversation that took place on the porch with some real music legends. This episode is anchored by a truly captivating interview with the members of The Weight Band, former members of The Band, this incredible group of musicians who have performed with the likes of Levon Helm, Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, and countless more American treasures. We are fortunate to have them over to the porch on a crisp, sunny, late autumn afternoon, just a few hours before their show at the legendary Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey. We got to talk about their rendition of Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City, their new album, which is coming out in January 2018, and a host of other fantastic stories. We are going to dive right into speaking with Jim Weeder about the recording of Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City for the Jericho album back in the early 90s. Whose idea was it? How did this classic rendition of Atlantic City come to fruition? Well, we were in a studio with uh, Rick Chardoff at the time, <clears throat> and uh, he was the producer, and the Hooters, so Eric Brazilian, played mandolin, and uh, the piano player was there, Eric, and the piano player, and I forget who else from the Hooters was there, I think the Hooters only like two or three guys. Great bunch of guys. They they joined us because they were partners with Chardoff. So when we went in to record it, I think Chardoff found the tune. Rick Chardoff, the producer at the time, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Eric played mandolin. So Chardoff must have had the arrangement in his head, right? Because he knew the tune and brought it in, and um, we cut it pretty much live, you know, with the. Eric playing mandolin, me playing guitar, and right. you know, Levon on the drums, and then probably overdubbed his vocals if I can remember. So it wasn't really telegraphed. It wasn't really thought about for a long, for too long. It was let's let's. No, it's, I think Rick Chardoff brought it in, and um, so here's a, here's a really cool tune. Right. He's the same guy who um, told uh, was all excited when we we're in the studio that. Uh, he found out his family tree, hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, he said he went all the way back to Israel in a certain area, and uh, uh, you know, hundreds of years where he was from in Israel. And so then he turned to Rick and said, um, "You ever look into your family tree, Rick Danko?" And Danko goes, "Oh yeah." He goes, "Really? Wow, that's really cool. Where are you from?" He goes, "Moron, Mongolia." And we all like. <laughs> We all fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> I think we spent $150,000. Uh, it was on Sony, and almost all of it was on sushi. And then <laughs> we cut a couple songs, and then we got thrown off the label. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you something that's amazing. Albert sings a song when we do it, and he can testify for this. The amount of people that, that request that song, I had no idea. I, I mean, it's really more like one of the favorite band yeah. tunes, and I, I didn't realize it until love in the last few years, you know? Right. Right? How many people have requested from you? I started doing that song um, probably three or four years ago. I was playing, I spent a lot of years playing on this Southern Soul circuit that is basically runs from uh, Virginia to Georgia. Mm-hmm. And and the bands play 300 shows a year, nonstop. And you know, a musician can make a decent living and not have to travel all over the place. Right. And uh, and the area I'm from, which is just uh, above Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, I didn't grow up on the band. The, their music was not; it didn't make it there for some reason. I guess you know it's just a different state of mind. It's you know. Imagine Myrtle Beach. It's party time. It was. It's all about Motown and old soul music and doing the shag dancing mm-hmm. stuff. But this band I was playing with, I, I heard this song. I heard Levon's version, and I, I can honestly say I don't think I've actually ever heard Bruce's version of the group. But we started doing that song. So, so these this this group of people, uh, they're not hip to the band. And I just heard the song and loved it, and I was like, you know, we were, my band was a little different than the the rest of the the stuff, you know, we didn't do Bruno Mars and all that stuff, you know, it was more Roots Blues and Delbert McClinton style stuff. So we added this Atlantic City song to our repertoire, and people lost their minds over that song. I mean, there's still, you know, my old band, that's still the, the, when I left them, you know, that's probably the... Yeah. Biggest tune they lost. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, it was incredible. Well, people, and and so many people that might be the only band song they know from down there. Yeah. You know, but it, it just amazes me how people relate to that song. The few fun. times that Albert's been doing it, he we finish the song literally, finish it, and then he gets the audience to sing along, and every person in that place knows the lyrics. Knows the song. Yeah. So I'm curious, so I'm curious um, singing this song, do you? Do you have an interpretation of the lyrics? Do you have a way that you relate to it? I know it's a hard question, but do you have a way that you relate to it where, you know, well, you feel like it's your voice or it's somebody else's voice? or uh, You know, man, I, I honestly have to give it all to Levon, man. I, I feel like he owned it, and and I think about him when I sing it. And, and, I, and I do have the Southern thing going on. Yeah. It's not contrived. I'm not... <laughs> I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. I know, you're my, not from my, my father was a Yankee fan. I mean, it, but but um, I just think I just think he killed it. He nobody could ever sing it better than Levon to me, you know. So I kind of you know I, I think about him, and and then sometimes you know 
I'll get almost emotional and I can't think about him. Right. I remember doing it at the barn was a real, wow. really weird thing. Um, I could barely get through it. I could really, it's because he is in that wood in that barn. You know, there's you, I mean, you look at me now, I'm already, you know, I'm just getting choked up. And it's you also powerful. say it's not that drove old Dixie down, and it's a similar thing that Levon it just had such a big presence, right? That I mean, that, that becomes a tribute to him in a lot of ways too, because you know, Knight drove old Dixie down. People just assume he wrote it, but but he didn't. But I mean, he's the voice of Vir- Virgil Kane. I mean, he just sings from such a deep place, you know. And it's right. really weird, you know. Last night the Brooklyn Bowl, we get to the, you know. Uh, and a Yankee put him in his grave, yeah. and there's and there's like you know several hundred Yankees going Yankee, <laughs> and you know I feel a little uncomfortable about that. To be honest with you, I, I, I think about that. I'm like, here comes that line, and that might be why I've heard that he didn't care to you know do it sometimes. No, he said Joan Baez ruined it for him. Uh, <laughs> wow, well. that's what really happened. Joan Baez ruined it. She for ruined him. it. I'll never do it again. He told me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, there's a story to that song that nobody really knows too much about. Every once in a while, Marty gets me to tell us tell it. <laughs> I was going up with Richard Emanuel. We just got back from Portugal in the 80s. And we were going to uh, up to Richard's hometown. So so we took a, we took a, uh, we took a little tiny little plane, four-seater, and flew out of Albany and landed in like a in Buffalo, then Richard rented a Maverick or a Pinto, one of those things, and he's doing 100 miles an hour, floored all the way to his hometown in Stratford. I said, Rich, we're a little, going a little fast, aren't we? What? You know, they had no idea of speed or nothing. Didn't matter. Kind of guy. <laughs> Which Marty could attest to. But yeah, so so we, we pulls over as we're getting close to his hometown. He goes, that's where I drove old Dixie down. His car was Dixie. No way. No way. So that that had to influence Rob. And of course, it's a story about the South yeah. and everything. But that's kind of where that line came from. Yeah. I mean, they drove it down. It was in the field. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, Robbie rode in the car with him and, well, you know, old Dixie. Yeah. And then he took it. Such an amazing storyteller and songwriter. I think another part of it, uh, it has to do, actually, is... Um, Part of what Albert said and the connections of, like Brian playing so much with Levon and Jim being in the band, and I played with four of those guys individually in their careers, and you don't forget what that gets in you, right. you know. So if you go to sing a song like Atlantic City, or if I'm singing a Richard Manuel song, or sometimes I sing "Makes No Difference," the same thing happens to me that Albert just said. It, it just I, I almost can't sing it. I have to. Think about what's coming out. I actually wanted to, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk to you guys about It Makes No Difference because to me this song is like probably the most personal song I've ever listened to in my life and and I briefly talked about it before but I heard you guys play it in uh, 2015. I don't know if it was everybody here but uh, it was definitely Um, you. Yeah, it was 2015 in New York in a tiny little venue, New York City and um I, I was listening to the lyrics, and it was though, even though I've heard the song a million times, it was though I heard the song for the first time in my life, but you captured the essence of grief, and I had just lost somebody I deeply loved, and hearing that, so I'm wondering, like, do you have that connection to the song? Because I felt it, I felt oh, yeah. it big I time. think it's 
Jim always says that about that song that <clears throat> Rick, once he sang it, and I, I say this every time we do it, he, he never stops singing it, and that's really true. Even later in his career when he would do solo gigs, that was probably the highlight of his of his performance for the night was that song. And I don't I don't know why there was such a strong connection with him in the song, but that's what I think made the strong connection with everybody else in the world, including us and the song, yeah. was how he took it and what he did with it, you know. Yeah, I mean he was able to and your portrayal of that, your channeling of that was able to express everything I felt about grief and Smart. it's, it's Thanks for using the word channeling because that's that's what it is and that's what Albert was talking about. It, well, really? it is channeling. I think that's what you've been talking about from the beginning. During Garth's uh, acceptance speeches at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he goes out of his way to talk about that kind of stuff. And um, I'd like to hear what Brian has to say more about the accordion thing and and how you feel, you know, playing a bunch of those parts and when you have to come to a part that Garth played and, and uh, it's the same thing for you if you don't mind me. Well, it, well it, I mean, it is in the, in the sense of channeling, like you said, because I mean, I'm channeling his playing. I mean, I I don't play part, I don't try and replicate exactly parts, but I definitely, it's like a memory thing, you know, you play so long, it becomes part of your vocabulary. And so, um, and yeah, I, I Go back to what I said before. An interesting thing going to Norway, this this accordion festival I did, because we played it last year. It was and they did a tribute to uh, the last waltz. Right. What was it? How many years? Uh, whatever. Forty years of it. And so there's a band called Prudence there. That's their biggest rock band, and they just love the band and just so I mean it's all about their influence of there. And so then I so I came. It was an accordion festival. It turns out I was the only accordion player there. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot. Yeah, but it turns out the guy that led Prudence was—he um, introduced accordion in rock music, and Garth was the guy that really introduced accordion in, in rock music. So he was known for this. And then, as a just an odd aside, he ended up saying his other influences was Cajun music and the music of Jimi Hendrix. And I actually used to play Cajun music mixed with Jimi Hendrix. It's just a That's weird, crazy. like, I mean, I ended up talking to the guy, I said, you're like my spiritual cousin from the Nordic lands or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but, you know, but Garth, before we went there, Garth used to go there. And there they, was like an homage to, to Garth. So there's a very odd connection that's kind of going around, you know, and that shows, it says a lot about the influence of the band and Garth. That here's like a country like Norway, and they revere them much more than the U.S. does with the band. I mean, yeah. Yeah. he still goes and he plays the pipe organs of the of, the, of that area too. Wow. They just go and sit there and play and knock you out. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Garth too. We you know I, I talk we talk about the accordion, and that's just that much of Garth's vocabulary I mean pipe organ I mean play ragtime on the piano I mean just it's just endless he's an American treasure he is exactly what you talk about when you're on tour with him and he would just constantly be like transcribing weird polka music and just whatever transcribing one one some years it would be Earl Bostick saxophone he'd sit there with his pen and transcribe every you know, Earl Bostick or 
you know all the guys. The guy who was with Honky Tonk, Clifford, Clifford Scott. Clifford Scott. But he had it note for note, and and you know, you know, me and Rick and Lee, we'd all be laughing out of our brains with the rest of the guys. Never, <clears throat> not too much seriousness, but a lot of laughing. MacArthur just spent hours on the bus transcribing, and then in some years it was just accordions, like accordions from all over the place, accordion players, hmm. polkas. He's got. Books of transcriptions, compositions. Books. Wow. Yeah. I don't know how many books are, are there are of those, but maybe, let's say there's a hundred or yeah. two hundred. So when I was working with him, I was on tour with him. I finally got the courage to ask him. I said, "Well, why don't you put out like a series of books, or you know, some sort of a maybe? I'm not sure what." And he said, "Oh, well, Marty, I'm I'm still considering what I'm going to do about those." Okay. <laughs> we gonna break up this signifying. Somebody's gotta go. There you have it, folks. The point is in the process. Wow. Amazingly fascinating stuff from a group of very generous, positive, brilliant cats on the scene. We have a whole other section of this interview where we go into detail about their new album, World Gone Mad, to be released in January 2018. Man, Filler, I have to tell you, that was a personal highlight for me. Having those guys over to my porch and hearing their stories, that was just amazing. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. We followed up our interview by going to the show that night at The Pony. Filler... What did you think of their performance? I thought it was one of the best shows I've seen all year. They're all absolutely ripping players. There's absolutely no ego. It's just all joy and complete mastery. Yeah, totally. Levon and Danko were for sure smiling down. We want to thank Jim Weeder, Brian Mitchell, Marty Greb, Albert Rogers, and Michael Bram, who unfortunately couldn't join us for lunch that afternoon because his taco truck had overturned on the thruway. Michael... We hope your taco truck survived the affair, and we hope you're okay. But we know you're okay because we saw you drum your ass off later that evening. We also want to thank Pete Costanzo, Jenny Pichet and her amazing salad, and Anita Carpenter for making the interview with the band happen. So you've been listening to Cover Story. If you'd like to comment on any of today's topics, find us over at thecoverstorypodcast.com. If you like what you hear, we would love it if you could head on over to iTunes and give us a review or a rating. It really does help other folks find the podcast. Yes. Thanks for the great reviews so far, everyone. A shout out to Nurse Annie Doll, wherever she may be, for her glowing review. Whoever you are, Nurse Annie, we hope you're out there wearing your rubber gloves nice and tight today. Thanks for listening. We look forward to chatting with you again next week as we head back to the porch to dive into the cover song that had a profound effect on Amanda and inspired this entire podcast. This is Amanda and Filler signing off. Until next time, look out streets, here we come. <laughs>